Hey, hey, good morning, CLC family. I want to hear a couple stories that that encourage you to pray. Uh, Let me just share a couple. One, not so important in the whole scheme of things, and the other one, pretty important in terms of life for just on a personal level. So a few weeks ago, uh, I had what had been purposed as kind of an annual outing with some friends of mine that I've made for many years. One of them laid hands on me when I was 24 years old to be a pastor, has been a lifetime friend. Two of the other guys, I was in the room when they prayed to receive Christ. And so we are on the pursuit of rockfish, right? Um, so the striped bass, the, uh, the Chesapeake Bay um, adventure. And so we had what was a beautiful day. We had hired and pooled together resources for seven hours. And um, yeah, I had even prayed that we would catch a fish. And for six and a half of the seven hours we paid for, we had absolutely nothing. So one of my friends calls his wife uh, and just says, we're coming, we're coming for lunch, we're empty-handed, we don't have any fish. And she told him, she goes, well, I'm gonna fix that because I'm gonna go up to the bedroom, kneel down and pray. Um, And so, yeah, okay, great, do that, Esther. Um, She does that, and for the next 20 minutes, we unstoppingly caught like fish were jumping in the boat. I would show you pictures, but it's better to tell how big they are, you know, like like this. It was incredible. Uh, And, you know, I'm like, yeah, I prayed. I'm sure things were happening uh, as I prayed, she prayed, and uh, so we give glory to God. Um, So that's a trivial thing to encourage us to pray. And it is a mystery, right? Some of the things that God does, some things he doesn't. So then the other adventure in our lives has been this looking for a house since we moved to the area. I remember the pastoral nominating team told me like, oh yeah, and we appreciate, you know, you're gonna go through the hassle looking for a house. And I said, oh, that's nothing. I mean, we've looked for a house before. No problem. We did not know Chester County. We did not know. You guys mean it. Crazy. So in January, we're, I order these specialty garden plants, heirloom tomatoes, whatever. And this January, I'm sitting there and saying, you know, hey, we don't have a yard to plant these in. We've been looking for months. Do I order them or not? And my wife says, we're people of faith. We've asked the Lord. We're not double-minded. Order them. So I got all these plants coming uh, in May. I made it late May, like May, uh, the very end of May, just to give us enough chance. That was my wavering. Uh, And she says, yeah, we're going to do it. So May 5th comes, no housing projects, prospects. And I'm like, hey, hon, 60 days, I'm not going to be planting a garden on July 5th. We've got, you know, two words for anybody who starts their garden on July 5th, like heat stroke, um, you know, for the plants and the person. So shortly after that, the Lord brought the house of his design and we closed on it in three weeks. We've had possession of it about eight days get the thing painted and carpet ripped out. Uh, some of you have been helping. I'm gonna give SOSs for else, others. And my hands are so sore from digging rock out of that garden with my new best friend. He was, he was a good friend, but he's now my best friend because he has a bulldozer and know-how and like amazing. Um, uh, and, and so that garden is going in and the deer fence is going up next, you know, because you all know what happens. Plant a garden, watch out for the deer. But God is good and his timing sometimes, you know, puzzles us and what he says yes to and no to. Uh, but I want to just lead us and invite you. Let's, let's come to the Lord together. Uh, and the Bible says that sometimes we have not because we ask not. Uh, other times we don't know what God's greater wisdom is. But let's go to the Lord our God in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege and the gift of being able to call upon you. Lord, you are a kind-hearted father 
And you have called us to bring every manner of request to you because there is no such thing as a large request in light of who you are. And so there is nothing too small and nothing too large that we can bring to you. And we thank you for your fatherly care in all things. And Lord God, we would come to you especially thankful for the one thing that cannot change or be taken away, and that is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has purchased for us. Because of him, we can come boldly into the most holy place. And because of him, whatever our circumstances, we can know that we have an anchor for our soul. We have been tethered with an inseparable bond to your goodness, whatever our circumstances. We come, Lord, lifting up and interceding for those who right now are walking through some valleys of difficulty, hardship, affliction, personal health difficulties in multiple directions. Lord, each of us know names. We would mention their names before you right now, inwardly in our hearts or whispering under our breath and ask that you would touch, encourage, uplift. We come now also asking for strength to minister in your name. We thank you, Lord, for the community that you've called us to live in, and we thank you for the opportunity where we live, where we work, where we play, the people we have opportunity to interact with. We pray you would grant us the faith to see each one of those as a divinely given opportunity, a divinely given appointment, to breathe out the encouragement and the refreshment and the knowledge of Jesus embolden us soften us make us able to listen and interact in a way that is shaped after your son and we ask Lord uh, that you would forgive us and be speaking to us and lead us Lord into a real encounter with you both through your word preached but also the visible word of the bread and the cup that we are going to be preparing to partake uh, we ask that you would speak to us in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to hear God's word from um, Revelation chapter 3. We're looking at these post-resurrection letters of Jesus, probably again occurring some um, 50 years after the initial Pentecost. Uh, and these are the words that Jesus writes to seven churches. Uh, and we come to the final one uh, in which uh, I wanna prepare you, there is not a single word of encouragement for this church. It is the church at Laodicea. Uh, it was a city that was so wealthy that when they had an earthquake, they told the Roman government, don't bother, we've got enough, we'll take care of all the rubble and we'll clean it up. Uh, they were known for exporting ISAV, they were known for exporting clothing, they were known for exporting even money and gold. Uh, and so uh, in this text, uh, Jesus is not pleased with the kind of complacency uh, and the loss of intimacy and zeal in relationship to him. And so I invite you to, to hear the word of God. You can remain seated, but with reverence, let's hear uh, the word of Jesus to this church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, 
the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That sends the reading of the perfect word of God. Have you ever been nauseous? Like inescapably nauseous. It is a horrible feeling. I mean, I think of uh, when our oldest son, Rob, who I'm excited is going to be here at the 1045, when he made his entry known, we didn't know that he had taken up residence in my wife's womb, but all of a sudden she could not cook. She had an aversion to favorite foods, uh, and that was the way he announced his presence, and that, that continued for about three or four months. <laughs> I think of a time uh, in September, uh, a few years ago, I decided to take Nate on a deep sea fishing headboat from Jersey. Uh, and someone had wisely warned us, don't go inside the cab, you'll get seasick. But it was cold and the waters were choppy and it was washing up cold and brisk winds on us. And so I said to Nate, let's, let's go inside the cab. Uh, and when we did, a, a wave of nauseousness hit both of us uh, to, the, to the point where, you know, the saying is that seasickness won't kill you. It will simply make you wish you were dead. <laughs> it was horrible. Um, well, here we have a very unique word of Jesus because we have Jesus who literally healed every manner of sickness and infirmity known to humanity, saying to an entire church, you make me sick. Now, I don't know whether you have ever said that to anybody. <laughs> don't, don't volunteer your hand. <laughs> um, but if you have, or you felt like it, I think we've all sometimes maybe felt like it, um, it's probably a good thing to restrain yourself because that is probably an intemperate outburst of the wrong kind of anger when you say to someone, you make me sick. Uh, it also, on our lips, would probably be a rather self-righteous 
statement. In other words, we are saying, you know, you are guilty of a kind of misbehavior or attitude or whatever that I am immune from. And when I look at you, you make me sick, right? So the words that I don't think, I don't think a seriously in touch with Jesus person could ever make. And so it's kind of interesting that Jesus would unabashedly make this statement to this church. Uh, he is the amen, the faithful witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is the ruler of God's creation. This is the one whose eyes can see through all misbehavior. And he says, I know your deeds that you were neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, we kind of get this image, but I want to give you a little bit of history, and I'm going to give you two options for understanding it, uh, because I think they both might help us drill into this text. Because you were neither cold nor hot, I wish you were one or the other, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And, and we're going to look at this in the context of uh, this people, this group, um, Laodicea was between two places known for water. There were the Colossae Cold Springs, uh, and then there were, uh, and those were for drinking and refreshment and great drinking water. And then there were was, uh, the Hierapolis Hot Springs, which were not for drinking, but they were for bathing uh, and refreshment. And you have this very wealthy, wealthy city. And what everybody knew is that the water is, you know, it's like if you, certain beach houses, you know, near a beach, whatever you say, get the bottled water, right? It's no, it's no good for drinking. And, and so um, there are enough miles away um, that um, here's a picture of the hot springs. It looks like it's snowy, but it's not. It's the crystals, uh, and they are hot springs. Um, and here's a picture of the cold springs at Colossae. Um, but the problem is the cold springs at Colossae are so far away that there is no way they could have built an aqueduct. Um, this is the largest Roman aqueduct to bring water. The, the aqueduct would have had to be like 330 feet high, you know, to bring the water all the way down. So, th but, but what was known was here you have this wealthy city and they can't get decent drinking water. You know, there's, there's no way they can build an aqueduct that will bring uh, good drinking water. And we know if you're ordering something, I don't think there's any drink that we say, hey, could I have a glass of lukewarm? Um, you know, you're like, bring me hot coffee, uh, at least to a certain heat. I mean, I know somebody was warming up their coffee because you got to get the, you know, for me, it's like a, a lot of cream and coffee, but it's got to still be hot, you know, and you've got to get it at the right temperature. Um, you don't want it to be room temperature, and if you have, you know, your favorite cold beverage, your favorite, whatever it is, Diet Coke, iced tea, lemonade, whatever, you, you don't want to reach for it on a, on a hot day to quench your thirst, and it's just, it's room temperature, right? And yet, what this text is often traditionally understood as, you know, would be saying hot, passionate zeal for Christ uh, is good, but um, cold you know, as cold as ice, you're willing to sacrifice our love. Remember those lyrics, uh, you know. Um, but coldness, nobody praises someone and says, oh, their devotion to Jesus is so cold and refreshing, right? Nobody says that, right? And so, so I think like coldness would be bad, but the, the, the difficulty with that is, is Jesus really saying, 
I would rather you just go ahead and be a Satan worshiper over here than be lukewarm over here in the middle. Is, is he really saying that? Or is he saying, no, cold is good. If it's a cold beverage, it brings me refreshment. Um, hot is good, um, and that brings me refreshment. Is he, uh, is he saying it? So some have, some have struggled to say, like, it's so, isn't it? It's so radical. Jesus is basically saying, your moderation nauseates me. I'd rather have you be against me, right? And so they've said, well, maybe that's not what he's saying. Maybe he's, maybe he's really saying, yeah, be cold and refreshing um, or, or be hot and powerful. And so the, the benefit of this interpretation is saying the problem is when, the, the problem of lukewarmness is when the beverage gets too separated from its source. You know, if you were carrying the coffee a long ways in your car, you got someone at Starbucks, but you've got an hour to get there, it's not gonna be a great experience when they take it up to their lips, unless you've got one of those really fancy, expensive, insulated cups, right? <laughs> Maybe you can make it that way. Or if you've got something cold with ice in it, and again, you know, and you're bringing it to someone, but it, it's not gonna get, because you're too separated from the source. This is the ultimate essence of being lukewarm. It's when we are separated, we have a secondhand relationship with Jesus that has lost the direct impartation of, of intensity. It's what I've heard it said this way, the difference between religion and Christianity, religion is, is people following people who are following Jesus, that's religion, and Christianity is simply people following Jesus. There, there is one thing that, you know, you can, you can get to a certain place in the Christian life by receiving truth secondhand, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have teachers. I'd be out of a job if I said that. <laughs> um, but we've got we've to make what Christ has given to us our very own. And so there is one thing I think, I think that he is saying, uh, of saying, don't be room temperature. Christian, don't adjust to the climate around you. And how do you not adjust to the climate around you? You have direct access to the God who makes you different than the climate around you and will make you a refreshing breath of change. We've lived in an era where the church has been told lies and maybe is telling lies that say like, well, if we want the world to pay attention to us, we've got to show the world that we are into everything the world is into. That is the most ignorable form of Christianity and the most useless form of Christianity, it's manure pile reject Christianity, right? Jesus says if the salt has lost its savor, it is not even fit for the manure pile. Um, it, it, is, it is a simply blended in. And so you could, you could take this that way and avoid the sense, because it does seem a bit strange for Jesus to say, I wish that you were hot, or I wish that you would just go the full way and, you know, and totally reject me. And, and it says, no, no, cold is good, hot is good. Okay, does that make sense? That's one possible way to understand it. But as I've wrestled with this text this week, I actually think, well, that's an intriguing possibility. And because of all the background and whatever, I don't think that's really, I think Jesus is really saying the shocking, jarring thing that we think he is saying He's saying the most dangerous thing and the thing that most offends him in the world is a lukewarm follower, that that is more offensive, it is more dangerous, um, it, it is more nauseating, if you will, to Jesus than even a person who is an out, an out complete rejecter of Jesus. Now, I've read a commentator named Gordon Fee, who I think is an excellent 
commentator in person to read. He, he just passed away a couple years ago. And he says, here is the reason. He's a great scholar. He says, here's the reason he thinks that Jesus really is saying what we kind of think is impossible, that I would rather you go the full way and just totally reject me than be in this mushy middle. And he says, first of all, the reason that it is more uh, preferable to be completely cold as ice in your relationship to Jesus, frosted over, than to be in this middle lukewarm area is that if you're lukewarm, it's very hard to detect how misaligned you are with Jesus. If you're lukewarm, you're probably going through the motions. You're attending worship, at least enough that you're not completely AWOL. You're, you're living uh, with a sense of a, a nod to God, right? And, and you're going through the motions, and so you can just very carelessly drift and drift, and nobody really sees the outward decay, and so it is more dangerous to be lukewarm because if you were utterly, completely shut down, you know, you might have some Christian friends saying, wait, what's going on with you? Where are you? I miss you. Or you might even say it to yourself to say, wow, I have really drifted far. I'm in, I'm in a bad state. And, and that's why it may be better to be at the extreme because at least you can realize how sick you really are. Secondly, and I think this may be extremely important, is that in the world that we live right now, where is the greatest damage to Christianity being done? Is the greatest damage to Christianity being done by people who are outside of the church, who are railing their fist against God, who are defying all of his commands, who have a completely contrary to Jesus' agenda? Is that where the damage to Jesus is really being done? I would submit to you, I don't, I don't think that's at all where the damage to Jesus is really done. The real damage to Jesus comes from people who have enough of Jesus to make the world think this is the real thing, but it's a bogus bootleg product that they're peddling. I mean, we used to, when the kids were young and we would go to Manhattan a lot because Liz's family was in, you know, I would buy these bootleg watches that had these nice labels on it back when you didn't, you know, you had a watch instead of an iPhone. And you know, the watch looked awesome, it looked really good, but then it would turn your wrist green and then it would stop working in about four or five days. You know, with, and, and I'd be like, yeah, who, you know, whatever the brand name is, it's like, yeah, that's not worth it, not worth it. And that's what can happen. And I think Satan knows this, perhaps the greatest way to get people to go off a cliff is to have a bogus church is to have somebody who looks like they are manifesting complete devotion to Jesus, but they've actually imported something else in. There's a book written, I mean, written before a lot of the turmoil and storms that hit churches called You Lost Me uh, by a guy named Kinnaman, and he did research on younger people turning away from the church and saying, why have you turned away? And what they found is at least one of the major underlying reasons people turned away uh, was because they felt they had discovered in the faith of people who had influenced them, parents and others, that what they really cared about was not ultimately Jesus. What they really cared about was their own security, their own sense of self-importance, or in many, many cases, other agendas, and like the 24-7 the scrolling of cable news and filling our minds with political agendas convinced these young people to say, what my parents really care about is politics. And you all know what you get when you mix politics and Christianity. You know what you get when you mix politics and Christianity? You get politics. 
That's all that's left. That's all that's left. But if Jesus can, Jesus here is exposing the reality that the greatest way to offend him and offend others is that. But I, I want to set before you another possibility of why it is so offensive to be lukewarm, not just to the world. I'm going to raise with you the possibility that maybe the reason, if you, if you come to the place to recognize this is true of you, the reason that you honestly would say that yourself, that your zeal and your love for Jesus and your intensity of passion has fallen off because that, that's what this is. This is a falling off of the intensity of passion. He does, not, he does not critique this church for not having sound biblical doctrine. That's important, by the way. Don't knock it. You need to understand sound biblical teaching. This is always an important thing, but it's not complete. He doesn't knock them also for having deficient moral character. He doesn't knock them from being, for being sexually immoral or greedy or lacking in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He doesn't, he doesn't say that their morality is bad. There are three things that make a Christian an awesome Christian. Doctrinal clarity, personal character, and passion. And here he puts his finger on their lack of of passion in relationship to Jesus. I think I heard Dr. Phil say this once. <laughs> to say that one of the hardest things to cure in, a relation, in relational discord in a marriage is when there is just a complete lack of enthusiasm for the other person. That that is, that has to be revealed and repented of and renewed for that relationship to be righted. And I'm gonna set before you, it's possible that a lukewarm understanding of what it means to follow Jesus may be the culprit as to why our love for him has fallen in intensity. I heard a dialogue that took place with a pastor who was on a retreat at a Benedictine monastery, of all things. And he was there seeking renewal in this Benedictine monastery because he was just exhausted. And, and he just felt spent and wasted. And this conversation happened in a moment when they could converse. Part of the time is silent, but they could converse. And this pastor was sharing with this uh, Benedictine uh, monastic member, his absolute exhaustion. And here's what the monk said to him that I think this has just riveted me. It's been reverberating in my mind for days. The monk said to him, said, you know, the antidote for exhaustion is not necessarily rest. The antidote for exhaustion is wholeheartedness. And the monk said, may I propose to you that perhaps the reason that you were exhausted, exhausted is that much of what you were doing, you have no affection for. You're doing it because you have this abstract idea that this is what you should be doing in order for yourself to be liked, and you're exhausted because you, your real energies lie elsewhere. You've been, you have been ripening yourself, and you were ready to harvest yourself, and if you don't, you will rot on the vine. <laughs> I just think about that. The monk went on to say, 
These are the things that drain us. Obligation without affection. We're just going through the motions, checking our list. Being miserable to be liked. So we're doing all these things for appearances. We're unable to access energy that has moved to another area of life because we're just stuck where we are. When the key to a zealous relationship with Jesus a renewed relationship with Jesus is just to continue to align ourselves with the activity of where God is in our life. I repeat that. The key is aligning yourself with the activity of God in your life. It may mean you need to choose, at least add some different friend groups to your friends. Uh, it may mean a willingness to say yes to some things that you've said no to for a long, long time, and you've got your reasons, but you know what? The energy of God is in those things you have been saying no to, and you need to say yes. Uh, it, it may require you to say no to some things that you've said yes to. could be everything from careless intake of media to just a kind of continual flow into your life of of the riffraff, flim, flim flam of the world's news feeds uh, carrying you away. It could be settling into a low-grade kind of obedience that is not really challenging. I'm really convinced there are all kinds of radical commands of Jesus that we don't trumpet enough in the church because we bought into the idea that we should be seeker-sensitive to the outside person who doesn't have any background at all. And I just want to tell you, I don't think that that's, I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's beautiful. Because some of the most beautiful things I've seen are things that are not accessible to me. I can't do, but I say, whoa, I want to be on the trail of that. Anybody ever feel that way? Have we dumbed it down? Have we made Jesus less than overwhelmingly worthy of our whole affection? Have we gotten rid of the category of radical obedience? And just simply doing that next step. I want to tell you, a person in love with Jesus is preeminently a person of one thing. It's not enough to say that person is earnest, strong, uncompromising, meticulous, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. They are one thing. They care for one thing. They pursue one thing. They're swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Um, I ran across a, a quote recently that said, Christianity is at best experienced by extreme, radical self-surrender. Um, it is at best when it's surrendered in that way, it produces, you know, the Mother Teresas of this world who, who stun us with their complete self-surrender and giving. But when we make Christianity something lesser, it produces this kind of middle-in-the-road muddle that isn't that beautiful. And so... Again, this is, is the, the definition of it, and I want to do three things, and I don't know whether we're even going to have time because I'm getting carried away, and this is the problem of not preaching for two weeks, but we want to, um, the preacher has three hours of meditations to give, but I, I want to define it, and it is a lack of passion. I want to help us detect it. I think I've already done a little bit of that, uh, but, but just to ask you to detect it, I'm gonna ask you, are you going through the motions just in a perfunctory way? Are you pleasing people? Is there any sense in which you are willing to take a risk for Christ? 
It can be as small as just saying, I'm going to push into every relationship a little further than I am comfortable. Remember Christian's sermon that we are to lean into the uncomfortable. That's where deliverance from this comes. Um, Do we live with a constant sense that Jesus is calling us to, to upend the temperature of the room and to no longer blend into the temperature around us, but to, but to bring some kind of intensity. And I know we're all scared to death of fanaticism. And look, a fanatic, yeah, uh, is, has got the kind of bad rap because a fanatic is a person who won't change the conversation and can't change your mind and is just obnoxious. But the problem with a fanatic ultimately, and I've heard Tim Keller say this many times, is the problem with that kind of fanatic is they're not fanatical enough because the person who's a real fanatic to, for Jesus will be a fanatic good listener, will be fanatically in tune with the hearts of other people, will be fanatically self-giving, uh, will be fanatically kind. Um, the problem with a fanatic that is a jerk is they're not really fanatic in the right way. They just want to mouth off. They're just participating. They're just a dim echo chamber of the political culture wars. They've just got Jesus as the label, and they think they're standing boldly for truth. But Jesus never stood for truth in a way that acted as if those people on the other side weren't as incredibly and equally important to his father and that his father wanted them back on his side, right? He was a fanatic about that. Uh, And and so he was able to do both. And so are you taking advantage of of the opportunity to live out that tension and nuance? Are are you willing to to do more than simply blend in? I remember one Sunday, uh, a woman came into our church who I had not seen before, and she plopped down right like in that first row. And for the entirety of the worship service, she wept she danced. She had a little banner. She unfurled and unfurled it. And I mean, if you were in the congregation from the vantage point, even though she was not attempting to display or be seen, she was attempting to find a section where no one else was sitting, um, you could not have escaped what she was doing. And so um, I made kind of a beeline over to her wanting to, to hear her story and to see, is this just a display of someone who loves being enthusiastic or is it really born on a passion for Jesus? And she told me a story. She said that she had felt for some time that she had, she had worshiped in a perfunctory way, but, but the Lord had liberated her to just express her affection for the Lord like the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, that she had been gripped by that. And she began to do that in her church until the pastor called her to a meeting and said, hey, you know what? It's kind of rattling some people in our church. Could you tone it down or maybe move to a back section? She said she received that word and thought about it, but she prayed about it. The Lord was like, you know, no, um, I want you to pour out your love for me as you feel led to pour out uh, your love. And so um, she says, I decided to visit your church because I'm looking for a place where I can simply do that. I'm not trying to draw attention to myself, but... Uh, and, and what I noted about her is that she wept through all the parts of the service. She wept during the sermon. She wept at the end. She, the, the Lord just gave her that gift of emotion. And she said um, she actually had been visiting several churches, and the pastor reached out to her, apologized, and said, you know, since I had that conversation with you, there has been a pall over our congregation. There has been like a stifling of our worship and 
I am so sorry. And she says, I forgave him. But she says, I felt because it was so strongly felt by parts of that congregation that that was no longer my call, that he had released me from my call, and, and now I'm, I'm coming here. As I got to know that woman, I, I really found that there were to her bones, <laughs> there was just a depth of radical poured out, matched by obedience to Christ, love in her life. And she's always become kind of a, a story where I think there's, there's someone who was unwilling to blend in even to the amount of devotion or expression for Jesus in the church. And I'm not equating affection for Jesus with you know, hula hoops and jumping around and all that. I think that can be awesome. But what I am saying is our hearts ought to be, our hearts ought to be engaged and as enthusiastic as that, right? And she was willing to, to bear that. I like what one preacher said, um, he says, it's the duty of a pastor to raise the affections, the emotions, the tide to truth, the affections of the hearers as high as they possibly can be raised as long as they are affected by nothing but the truth of Jesus. I think that's a little hard for us <laughs> culturally. I don't find that as hard when I travel to Zimbabwe or India or other places. So that's detecting it in ourselves. How do you get deliverance from it? Well, uh, what does Jesus say? He says, behold, I stand at the door, I knock. Now, um, I just wanna ask you in that, in that verse, verse 20, Revelation 3.20, whose door is Jesus knocking at? It is not in this context specifically the door of the person who has never professed faith in him. Although I will say to anyone here who was in that situation, it is absolutely true. Jesus graciously knocks at the door. He bids entry into your life. And he has this gracious, gracious invitation. But imagine the shock to this church at Laodicea that they're having meetings, they even assembled to read this letter, and, and Jesus says, hey, would you let me in, please? They're like, let Jesus in? No, he's with us. He's with us, right? He's with us. They just assumed that he would, of course, be with them. I, I think of the story of a man who was kicked out of, out of a church for constantly challenging them about the poor in the community to the point where the pastor said, don't come back anymore. And he was sitting dejected on the church steps. And he said he had this vision of Jesus coming up to him and saying, hey, don't feel so bad about being kicked out of that church. I've been trying to get into that church for years and years. <laughs> but in reality, this does scare me about myself. That I can, I can assume... Jesus, yeah, me and Jesus, tight. I'm his preacher. I follow him. And he can say, hey, Bob, I've been trying to get in to your life. It could be Jesus saying, hey, I, I've been trying to get into your marriage. I've been trying to get into the way you talk to your kids. I've been trying to get into your generosity been trying to get into, you know, you've, you've been, you pushed me out, and there's some things I don't think you should be exposing yourself to. I've been, hey, you, you pushed me out. And I want you to know the, the gentleness, the beauty of this. 
that Jesus would come to us in this way. He's outside the door. And he doesn't give up on us who, who know him. And he, and he says, the, the, listen, listen to this. If anyone hears my voice, and, and he doesn't say, and does a whole bunch of works. He says, if anyone hears my voice and simply opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and him with me. They, they had no idea they were in this situation. That's why Jesus says, come buy from me gold. They were known for having gold. They thought they had gold. They, he says, you're naked, you need clothes. They were known for exporting clothes. He says, come put eye salve on your eyes. They were known as the medicinal center that, that manufactured this eye salve. And so Jesus is saying, you don't have what you think you have because you had let me out. But he says, all you need to do is hear my beckoning knock. And I love the image. It says, and I want to come in. I want to sup with you. I really do think he was thinking of what we're about to do in the Lord's Supper. This is not simply taking memorial emblems of bread and, and the cup into our hands and our bodies, but it is meant to be a face-to-face encounter with Jesus who would embrace us, who would welcome us back, who would look us full in the face and throw his arms around us. If there's any place in a worship service where we feel the enthusiastic embrace of Jesus and his kiss on our brow, it's, it's here. And so Jesus says, I stand at the door I knock. Those whom I love, I rebuke. I'm drawing this to your intention because I want intimacy with you. Do you know what it takes to repent? It, all it takes to repent is desire intimacy with the Lord more than your intimacy with your sin or your complacency or your waywardness. That's all it needs. It can be a grain more. It's, Lord, I know. I've wanted my sin. I've wanted my complacency. I've wanted my comfort. But you know what? I want you just that much more, and so I repent. And Jesus says, whoever opens that door, I will come in and sup with him. Let's pray, and I'd like to use the words of a prayer of confession. I've lifted some of these words from the Valley of Vision about lukewarmness. And let's make this, let's take these words and use them as a way of returning to the Lord, because to take the Lord's Supper, what is needed really is to be aware that we need a Savior. We continually need a Savior. The deeper we walk with him, the more we know it. Um, and so let's make these words our prayer. Let's, let's read and prayerfully read them together. Forgive me, Lord, where the fervor of my love for you has faded. Forgive me for settling for lukewarm devotion. Bring me back to the blazing power of the cross of Christ and rouse me by the depth of your love that sent Jesus to live and die for us. Grant me the gift of repentance and pour your love into my heart by your Holy Spirit for your name's sake, amen. And Christian, I'm gonna invite you to stand and to confess what you believe with the church down through the ages who is everyone who has opened the door to Jesus has been aligned with these great truths. And so I invite you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. It is my great joy and honor to welcome you, if you are a believer in Christ and you have turned from your sins, to the table of the Lord, to sup and have intimacy with Jesus. Um, we have a station over here if you're gluten-free. You can come here to dip the bread in the cup. But these are the words of institution. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, um, after uh, taking the bread and giving thanks for it to God, the Father said, this is my body which is broke, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. I invite our servers if they will come forward and come as God leads you and linger and partake uh, in the supper of Jesus. Yeah. 
So good. How good to be in his presence this morning. So prepare to go. I hope if you're newer here, you linger with us, turn in the connect card or hang out in our lobby, catch a beverage, hot or cold, no lukewarm, <laughs> but catch a beverage and enjoy conversation with folk. Um, secondly, um, Saturday is a rowing benefit for one of our key partners, Urban Promise. And uh, 
I'm rowing eight miles. I've never rowed before, so you can pray for Seth McNaughton. He's my partner. But we encourage sponsorship of CLC because I know this isn't biblical, but we want to be the most generous church around. We want to we be several miles distant and above the rest of these churches because no other church loves Jesus like we do, right? We know that. So sponsor, sponsor generously. Let's encourage this organization that is really ministering in Jesus' name. And then third, if you want to follow up sermon discussion questions around your table and home, we have an easy, it's a QR code, and you just have to put your picture on your phone, take a picture of it, and then it'll give you a place you can sign up, and you'll get delivered to your box, a little summary, some additional odds and ends from the sermon, and things to think about uh, so that you can help walk in the light of what God has made known through the preaching here. Now, uh, lift up your hearts, and let's take the God we've experienced here back into the life we're living. Now may the God of peace sanctify you through and through, body, soul, and spirit. Faithful is the one who calls you, and he will bring it to pass through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey.